Welcome back to Red Devil Talk, an independent Manchester United podcast. Today in the show, I'm delighted to be joined by former United defender, Billy Garton. Before we jump into it, Billy, thanks for taking the time. Pleasure, Jimmy. As a local lad, you obviously, you've done what so many of us can only dream of doing. You've done something that none of us would probably ever achieve. What's it like pulling on that United shirt for your debut in 84? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I tell my kids this as well, that even now I have to sometimes pinch myself to to believe that what happened to me as a kid growing up actually happened because I live so close to Old Trafford. Um, I want to say I might be one of the closest ever players to make it into the first team that was born in such close proximity to the stadium. Um, I can remember fans would actually park in my street and walk to the game. Um, I didn't need to go into the stadium sometimes to know that United had scored because I live so close you could hear the roar when they scored. The floodlights on a Wednesday night would illuminate the, the backdrop, the sky in and around the area where I lived. Um, you know, and so for me playing football in those streets and then dreaming of playing for your local club and then having it happen was just a, a magnificent experience. How did the move come about? Can you explain the process to me? Yeah, it's a typical process in those days. Um, all the local talent would be, if you were good enough, you'd play for your local town team. I played for Salford Boys. And typically Salford Boys was the platform where you get a lot of the, uh, the professional scouts coming and watching the games. Obviously, that was a way that all the talent was corralled into one area, into one team. So the, the scouts didn't have to look much further than Salford Boys and Manchester Boys to see that crop of players coming through that year. So really, that, that was the start of it for me, getting in the Salford Boys team. Uh, we had a good team as well. We got to the, um, the FA Schools final, um, so we had a decent team. And yeah, and so uh, Joe Brown, who was the um, scout, the, the head scout of the club at the time, um, and a couple of other local scouts were um, constantly chatting with my dad and and then I, I got an invite to go to training down at the Cliff Training Ground. And then, yeah, the rest is, is history. You plod on on that pathway then and hope that you can keep navigating over the, the obstacles that are put in your way. Of course, you went on to play over 50 times for the club. Do you ever look back and consider the genuine huge achievements that you have made? Now, it will move to your, your health problems shortly. Or is, that, or is there more of an overriding sense of frustration? So it's a bit of both, I think. Um, obviously... Magnificent experience playing um, for United, uh, running out at Old Trafford, you know, having know, knowing the, the heritage and the history of the place and um, being the local boy as well. I mean, that was magical. Um, the, the noise and the, the sort of the euphoria, especially when you won a game or you played well in a game, it's very special. Um, you know, slight regrets in the respect that the, that the illness took away a part of that. I mean, I'm not 
even sure. I mean, that's I, I compensate myself with this that you know I wasn't always a starter in the team, so I wasn't always a regular. I had some really tough competition in central defence to to get in there. Some really great players playing around me as well. So you know, but the the fact that it was sort of taken away, not not so much from my being able to play more at Manchester United, but that my career was cut short is what is probably, if there are any regrets or any frustrations, it would be more that like, you know, my career, professional career was over at 26 and, you know, maybe um, another five or six or whatever many years as a pro may have set me up better financially for the future. So, but I, you know, I, I loved playing and I did continue to play once um, the illness went away, played some semi-professional stuff, but yeah, um, in terms of excitement for playing for my my, my local team and, and the team I love, um, magical. I want to ask you about your diagnosis of ME, if that's okay. Yeah. Obviously, the season that season, we broke into the first team. You played the first 13 games. Can you talk me through the process or the journey, if you like, from the uncertainty of not knowing what it was to a subsequent diagnosis? Yeah, it, it was actually um, one of the most frustrating periods in my life because... The, no one really understood the illness. It was a pretty new um, condition. Um, it was obviously, at the time, it was dubbed the yuppie flu um, because it was like, like misunderstood. Um, you know, and I'm from Salford, so you can't be a yuppie if you're from Salford. So I'm, <laughs> I was carrying this stigma around, um, not fully understanding it to start with, and neither did the medical people that I was, I was in touch with. Um, and there was a lot of confusion over the diagnosis because I knew how I was feeling, but nobody could tell me exactly what it was that was making me feel like that. And so a lot of times I would try and push myself through it in training and in games um, and, and gradually realize that, that I was always making myself worse the more that I pushed myself because the fatigue and the, the tiredness that would come as a result of it was uh, the main symptoms. And so even that season where I started the season and was playing probably the best football of my life, I wasn't training um, and not a lot of people knew that. I was actually, you know, I was, I was probably once a week maybe getting out and doing something light, but I was going game to game. And the fact that the games were coming so quick and fast allowed me to keep up my fitness and conditioning. And so I was able to do that. Um, but it did get to a point where it was just becoming almost impossible. And I think my last game was against Coventry City away. And I think I came off at half time because I just... I was feeling dizzy and, and sort of lightheaded and not quite like being able to judge the ball and stuff like that. It was, it was a pretty weird feeling. Um, yeah, so the, the diagnosis thing was really frustrating. Um, and at the time, I was very critical of, of the medical profession at the club because um, they were pretty dismissive of the way that I was feeling and they can't find anything. So obviously, you've got nothing wrong with you. Like later on, as I, I sort of thought it through more, um, they didn't know either. So, you know, they're almost they're forgiven for that. The fact that they were as ignorant as I was with it um, because none of us knew what, what we were dealing with. And um, so, again, it, it took one doctor who had heard of it and was experienced with similar um, situations with patients he'd had. Once he told me that, hey, I think I know what you're suffering from, that was like a massive relief. Like it was, that was a really like a pivotal day really in the recovery. It must have if you don't mind me saying, it must have had a seriously negative impact on your mental health. Oh, big time. I have told stories I've got, you know, and, I, and I'm happy to share them because I know that mental health, especially in, in sport and, and in life in general now, is such a prevalent um, 
it's such a prevalent topic and one that's that's obviously often again overlooked and dismissed as as not being real but i was very depressed and suicidal at one point and um you know had some bad thoughts um you know that the the route the routine that i got into where i'd go into the club but i couldn't participate with the rest of the boys uh, the cliff training ground used to have a small little gym and it was almost like going into a prison cell because it was so small and dark and i mean you can imagine you know a december morning um you know dark and cold outside and you're in there on your own um, and sometimes I wasn't in there to work out. I was in there just to hide away because um, I, I was sick of people asking me the questions. How are you feeling today? Hey, what's going on? Are you getting closer? Are you, you think you'll be back this week? And I knew in my head I was nowhere near getting ready uh, to play. And so, you know, the routine was painful in itself. And then on top of that, leaving the training ground and knowing that you don't know what your future holds every day. Um, and the clock was ticking as well because my contract, I knew my contract was, was you know, coming up to close to expiring so it was a yeah it was a wor worrisome time and um i've shared it, my story with many people um since i stopped playing um I'm, I'm always happy to share that story i i did a lot of counseling after i'd stopped playing with people who were suffering from me as well and most of them younger people than me um so yeah i, I do appreciate the difficult times that i went through and and i've got stories to share that i think can help other people as well i sort of drifted through it yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't have any set strategy. I didn't get any medical help in that respect. Um, I suppose um, I had a, I, my daughter was young at the time. Um, I suppose having a good family and, and friendship network around me. Um, and I think feeling like that because the diagnosis had come in and because I felt like that there was a a light at the end of the tunnel at some point I, I feel like I always just kept clinging to the fact that one day I'll feel good again um, I didn't know whether I would feel well enough again quickly enough again to be able to resume my career but I think just realizing that much as I loved uh, football and as much as I loved being around Manchester United and, and, and the game my health was more important than any of that and so I think in all truthfulness um, just the fact that I had a light at the end of the tunnel to get well, and then everything else will fall in place after that. And that's really the way that it was. You know, I, I, I definitely did not have a, a strategy in any, in any capacity. Of course, you, you won't say it, but I can say it. You were a talented footballer because you simply don't get to play for United if you're not. Was it frustrating looking at your teammates, knowing that you couldn't get to the level that you had the ability to do? Like, was there any resentment towards your teammates? Yeah. Yeah, there was, and, and everyone will tell you the same. Every player that, that plays will tell you the same. Maybe different now because, a little bit different now because of the, the amount of money that's in the game and the amount of money that people who are not playing in the team are earning. You don't necessarily, as you know, have to be an established player in the first team to be making a lot of money in, in, the, in, the, in the current game. Back then you did, like your livelihood was, was on the line and your existence was driven by being able to, break into the first team and, and, and be a successful player uh, in the first team. And, you know, more often than not, when you weren't in the first team back then, the signs were on, the writing was on the wall that you were at some point going to be out of the club, right? Like nowadays they gather a squad together and, and it's a huge squad. Back then it was almost like if you weren't capable of breaking into the first team as a regular, it was difficult to say that you would be staying at that club for a long period of time. And so to your point, um, 
you know, resentment, absolutely not in a personal way. And the boys that, that you play with will know that, like not in a personal way, but just sort of envious that they're out there and you're not. And even more frustrating sometimes, like that season I felt was my breakthrough season, like getting into the team. I was playing well, playing the best football of my life. And to have that sort of snatched away was, was really frustrating. And then also what sometimes with all due respect to the players that I played with, um, my teammates, I knew I was better than some of the guys that got in the team. And so that's frustrating as well, because I always felt like that if I was fit and healthy, then it would be me there. And I would have probably have established myself that season. Um, and so, yeah, without doubt, watching the games, you know, I obviously loved the, the, your teammates, wanted them to be successful, but you also didn't want them to be too successful that it would, you know, close the door forever for you. So, but, but absolutely, that's a feeling I think most players have. How did you find the transition out of the game? Was it difficult to accept that you were no longer a footballer? Again, similar to the question you asked me before, and the answer is the same. Because my health was more paramount importance to me, although it was disappointing, it wasn't like that I'd retired or I'd come out of the game because of a, of an, of a genuine injury. So where you feel good every day and you just know that, hey, I've, I had an injury and I'm done. Mine was more like wanting to feel well, wanting to feel normal again and get better in terms of the way I was feeling every day on a daily basis. So in essence, my, um, you know, my, my feelings about coming out of the game were more born, about, were more born out of getting well and, and not lingering on the fact that, hey, I'm not playing at Manchester United anymore. I'm not playing as a, as a pro. Um, and I can remember those feelings as well. Like I, I remember not, I thought I would feel worse when I was going to watch games and, and, and talking with some of my teammates that it would rekindle the memories of being there, but nothing was more important at that point than getting well. So yeah, I mean, that, that was the overriding thought. Hi, this is Ken Hardy, and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. I want to ask you about your work in America. Obviously, you're coaching, as you said before, we came on in San Diego. How did that move come about? Why America? Yeah, a, a good question. Um, two reasons. One, um, my wife's family had emigrated um, to the East Coast, to New Jersey, and we'd visited there a number of times. And so we'd felt like that we'd like to maybe at some point in our life explore the possibility of moving across to the States. I mean, New Jersey was lovely as well, where they lived. I lived on the Jersey Shore, so it was by the, by the beach and the ocean. But I never really felt like that was the place that was going to be the ultimate move. And then I got a chance to come across to California, to San Diego, do some soccer camps. Um, and I came on my own and a couple of buddies and, and told my wife, like, that's the place. If we're going to go anywhere, San Diego, we have to go and at least look at it. And true enough, we did. I think the following year, my wife and I came out and visited um, and we fell in love with San Diego. Um, and then I had to try and find a way to get here. Thankfully, my wife, uh, when her family emigrated, she retained a green card. Um, so that was, our, that was our pathway, really, uh, to be able to get in. And um, yeah, and I love it here. It's a fantastic place. And what kind of age groups are you coaching? So I'm the director of, of the younger program at the club. Um, I'm literally working with the, the, the young uh, boys uh, under eights, uh, actually younger than that, under sixes, all the way up to like under 14 uh, years of age. Uh, so, so these are the babies, if you will. Um, and I oversee the program. So um, I got a teaching degree as well, Jimmy. I don't know that you knew that, but I, I went and did a, a, a degree and, and 
uh, I worked as a teacher for a little while in uh, Manchester and and so my teaching background allows me to be really like skilled and good with the younger kids I think that helps greatly so um, as long as, as as well as my uh, playing background and my coaching background I think the teaching element to that made it sort of easier for me to transition into those younger kids so I mean we've got some really talented players our club's probably the biggest club in the country and um, you know, so we get a we get a lot of the the elite players coming through to us. So it's good to work with really good young players. Obviously, the MLS is going from strength to strength. Do you think it'll ever get to the level of baseball or basketball, or how do you think it's progressing? You know, it, it it's had a, a number of false dawns in the past. Um, the game here, the pro game. I think this is the best place it's ever been in. Um, certainly, in the twenty years that I've lived here, it. I think the profile now is is higher than it's ever been. I think the league is justifying its existence on merit now rather than having those iconic players coming for the tail end of their careers, coming out like they did in the past. Your Beckhams and your Roonies and um, Zlatan and all the others that came, Robbie Keane, there was a number of, as you know, a lot of high-profile players came out here in the twilight of their careers. And so that was, to me... Um, that was a mixed message because they, I think the league here thought that that was a good thing. But from a playing perspective, I always felt that that was made them a little bit of a laughing stock. Like, hey, you're getting these guys, but they're coming when they're basically finishing their, their careers. Now I think the league exists on merit. Like, I think the quality of the players that they've got in the league now aren't reliant anymore on those, on those big iconic names just to make people watch the, the, the games. Um, and I see a young crop of, of, of talented players coming through for the national team as well. So I think the game here is probably in the best shape it's ever been in. Um, I think that there is a lot of um, there's a lot of education going on on, a, on an annual basis where the, the kids are not just now watching um, the Premier League or um, La Liga or, or the other European leagues, but they're watching MLS and they're watching their national team. And so I think that level of education as well and that like level of, of, of excitement about the good thing that's going on, the good things that are going on here is, I think, helping the game grow dramatically quickly here. I'd like to ask you about your work with Play On Pro. I read into it. I love the idea of it. I love what you're trying to do. But for our listeners who aren't familiar with this, can you tell us about your work? Yeah. So, I mean, I came back to live in England for a year um, and I, I didn't know whether I was going to stay, but we came and, and had an opportunity to come back. My two younger kids had never lived in England. They were born here. Um, they wanted to ex experience living in, in rainy Manchester. Um, so I spent a year back there and hooked up with a former teammate of mine and a good friend, Viv Anderson, who uh, was heavily involved in, in play on pro. Um, and so I met with him a couple of times for coffee and we talked about, you know, I was looking for some work and he was uh, looking for someone to come in and, and support uh, the project. And so I got involved heavily with, with, uh, with Viv, um, ended up being asked to be the CEO of Play On Pro, which was, you know, really an honor in many respects. Cause I, I felt it was really exciting getting back into the game, coming into contact with a lot of your former teammates and opponents that you played against. Um, and just being around the game again was really like an exciting thing for me. So um, Play On Pro basically is a, um, it's a, it's a, a network for former players and it's a, it's a, um, a private network, if you will, because you, um, you have to be invited into it. Um, anyone that's played at a high level will, will be accepted into it. <clears throat> and it basically is a support network as much as anything. 
to allow players that maybe, like we talked about earlier, suffering from you know any any mental illnesses or any any depression, the connection is still there because we created a a network of over six hundred um, former professionals and branched it out beyond football into many other sports as well uh, in, a, in an attempt to keep the connection there and the, and the ability to, to, to not feel like that you are abandoned and, and that, that you're isolated from your, your former teammates and the sport in general. And we tried many ways to ignite that connection, um, you know, organizing events. Um, our, our aim and dream was to be able to, at some point, provide work for our ambassadors, as we called them, um, whether that be media work or um, work on the after-dinner circuit or uh, getting them work in terms of commercial and advertising opportunities. And we, and we managed to start getting some traction with it. And the concept is a wonderful one. Um, the, the biggest problem was, was keeping the momentum going and, and finding a way to be able to monetize uh, what we were attempting to do. Um, because without the, the generation of, of, of revenue and, and consistent revenue, um, it, it really wasn't getting the traction that we wanted it to get. Um, but it, it's a wonderful opportunity for players to stay in touch. And we created a couple of WhatsApp groups and, um, and, and, and connected with people that maybe um, you wouldn't have thought that you could reconnect with. And the great thing was whenever I would um, introduce a new ambassador or, or a new ambassador would come on board, they'd find somebody on there that they played with or played against or lost touch with. And it was an ab and the ability to reconnect. And there's some great stories of guys who had like, you know, best pals at a club and then they lost touch. And then all of a sudden this connected them again. Um, and, and, and it was a, a really like a wonderful experience being around and uh, around that and seeing the, the sort of gratification you get from, from pulling the guys together again. Played in a couple of tournaments as well in Hong Kong, and uh, we set that up on an annual basis, taking a group of guys out there. That was a fabulous uh, trip, and that was the that's the intention to keep that that network of of players supported. Um, we've been trying to connect with um, the NHS and with some of the other organisations that you know we feel are relevant and could benefit some of our former uh, players, and you know, and that that continues to be um, an objective for play on pro to be able to to push further and, and reach further and, and and try and generate this this larger network um, even making it global in some respects it doesn't have to fully you know the, the model doesn't have to necessarily stop with football it could branch out into many other sports as well so it has has potential fantastic i'm curious to ask as a grown man do you still have the same affection for united that you did as, as a young lad Oh, you have to be with me on a, on a game day. I'm so passionate about the Reds. I mean, my two boys in particular that play, we sit and watch the games and we are crazy watching the games. I mean, we love the club so much. We love the team. Um, we're so into our club. I mean, my boys, my oldest boy in particular, only ever knew success, right? He's 21. So for the last five or six years, it's not been there like it was. But in, in, in the, the early parts of his life, he just thought that, hey, we win everything and we'll always win everything. So he's had to adjust himself to, to the, the, the last five or six years. Um, but the, the love of the club is there in our blood, um, always will be. Um, I have a special connection, obviously, because I played. My boys love it because probably because I played, but they are so passionate about United. It's... It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's still there and it won't go away.
What's your view on Solskjaer and his progression or lack big of question. it, depending on how yeah, you see it? Big, <laughs> big question. Look, I think like, like everyone, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated um, because the, the games that we watch suggest that we should be frustrated. Um, on, on a given day, they can be as good as any other club team in the world. And you've seen that in recent results. And then on other days, it looks like that they're just not interested and that they don't play for him. And so I worry um, in, my, in my heart, um, I worry that they're going to be able to put together the consistency needed to be able to be back at the top table um, because that's what I feel is lacking at the moment. When I, when I watch some of the results and some of the performances against lesser teams, that really concerns me that I wonder whether they're really playing for him um, or whether they pick and choose their days to play. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't know the inner workings of the club. And so I don't know what that feeling would be. But my hope is that we can get to a level of consistency because there's, a, there's a, an unbelievably talented group of players there. And we all know that. If you pick your starting 11 and put it out frequently against most teams, it should win way more than it loses that, that group of players because there's, there's serious talent there. The dilemma is whether Oli can, can gel that together and bring that group of, of players together and make them a machine because, and that's a word I use a lot when I'm talking about teams, you have to be a machine. You show up, this is what we do, and we win. And, and, and that is not evident at the moment. The machine is too often broken, or parts of the machine are broken. In Fergie's days, it was, it, it was very much a machine that just showed up and, and steamrolled over, t- over teams. And, um, and he managed with a level of fear, healthy fear in many respects. I just wonder whether that's the, the component missing for Oli. I'm not sure whether the players are fearful of not winning games for him. For me, I kind of, I hope more than believe that Solskjaer is the right man. Obviously, because he's a legend. I'm yeah. desperate for him to, to succeed. Like everyone yeah. is. I think at some point, you have to question, can another manager get more from this group of players? I look at other clubs and who they've appointed. And the classic one for me would be Ancelotti at Everton. There's almost the same group of players with one or two additions. And all of a sudden, that whole culture has changed at the club. And so Mourinho does it when he goes into clubs. Pep Guardiola does it when he goes into a club. It's not a mystery that those guys walk in and change the culture. And something about the way that they set themselves out and the structure that they provide allows them to use the model that they have and, and, and transition it from club to club as they go. So I'm not despondent on a new guy coming in. It just has to be the right guy. And that's why those guys, the, the, the top five managers in the world or whatever, could probably plug themselves into most clubs and make it successful. Klopp, for sure, is another one. Um, and we, we all are in envy of our rivals at the moment because they've got that component that we don't seem to be able to have. And that is that, that there's a manager in place that, you know, he can change the players, he can change the personnel, he can you know, suffer for injuries and, and still be able to, um, to produce performances that are, that are at the highest level. And, and that's a skill as, as a manager, that's a skill. Not everybody possesses it. You don't just possess it based on your coaching badges. It's got to be a personality thing as well. Um, Sir Alex's skill was, was personality driven. It was who he was as a person. You know, I wouldn't say he was a, 
a fantastic coach, if I'm being honest. I played under him and I've, I've been in his company many times and he's, a, he's obviously a, a wonderful person. Um, but I still think that his man management and the personality that he brought was what his strength was. And I believe that in this day and age, you should all be tactical geniuses because there's only so much you can learn about the sport. The other ingredients are what makes you special. Um, and that's my concern a little bit um, with Ollie is like, does he have the X factor that makes him a special manager? Having said all that, as, as poor as it's been, and it has been very poor at times, if we win our game in hand, we're only four points off the top. Like, it's a, it's a funny league. It's crazy, I know. So, it's, well, you're talking like the optimist now, like the, I am. Like, you're, you're always looking at, like, the upside. Win the game in hand, yeah. and then we're right there. I, I, I believe that as well. Like, we've had a crappy start. When I look at the games, against, I mean, we played really well against Everton, and then some of the Champions League performances, amazing. But it still frustrates the crap out of me when we can, you know, like I do, that we could have Burnley at home and lose. And that, yeah. that's where it's got to change because Liverpool don't do that. They don't lose at home to anyone, but they certainly don't lose at home to those lower, lower level teams. And so I think we're, we're living in optimism at the moment. Um, in the past, we used to live in expectation, right? It was, our, it was expectation that we'd win the league, that we'd get to the Champions League final that we'd win a, court, a trophy on the way. Now we're living in the, the optimist world, but um, we'll, we'll remain optimistic for sure. That's, that's what United fans do. Billy, thanks so much. I appreciate that. A pleasure, Jimmy. Always uh, happy to support anything that's supporting the Reds. Pleasure yeah. to talk to you. All the best, yeah. Thanks for listening to Red Devil Talk. We hope you enjoyed our latest episode and don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Red Devil Talk. If you listen on an Apple device, please consider leaving a review and a five-star rating. If you have any questions or comments or want more information on Red Devil Talk podcasts, you can get in touch via email at reddevilTalkMedia at gmail.com. The Red Devil Talk podcasts are a Red Devil Talk Media production.